0: and this is your first Sunday with Crosspoint Peachtree City. Rest assured that I think that there will be something for you to take away from even this morning uh, if you haven't been around for any other week of this series. Next week we do start a series as we uh, prepare to ramp up for Christmas, an Advent series. And so uh, the Christmas songs will be flying all over this place next Sunday. If if that um, is something that gets you jazzed, then be excited about next week. But again, we we seek to finish strong this Sunday. Um, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that, that we're finishing up the book of Daniel. That is a cha- we're talking about a challenging, complex book, right? Some of you have sat in your in your seat in this very room, and there have been some Sundays that you've gone. This has been more difficult for my mind mentally than any workout in a gym has ever been physically for me. As you walked away, going. Why'd you write that chapter, God? I think I'm grasping it, but I'm not fully sure. Um, For some of you, this has been more of a test of perseverance as a a Christian. For others of you, it's been a fairly easy ride. Um, But either way, my hope is that God's taught you a number of things as he has me, and that not just for the sake of intellectual assent, but things that have have and are working their way into the deep recesses of your being, Um, truths that you can preach to yourself in future moments of sin and doubt and unbelief. And this morning is no different. We have an opportunity to have our eyes open to some glorious promises of God. I love the way this, this book of the Bible finishes up. Um, promises so incredible that, that they're meant to compel the most downtrodden of saints. And so if you come in this morning and you've got a good bit of fight in you, then consider this a topping off of your tank. Um, but if you come in this morning and the fight is, is absent in your life, Uh, My hope is that Daniel chapter 12 would encourage you that uh, you would get a taste this morning of what we're actually fighting for. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that as the church's gift for free. It's yours said it before and I'll say it again, though my last name is Vizini, we will not hunt you down and seek your soul as payment for the book that you took from us. It's yours. Let me pray and we'll get going. God, as we close out this series, I do want to thank you for giving us this book of the Bible, a book that has frustrated me in times of preparation over the course of the last few months, a book that has challenged my understanding of who you are. Uh, A book that has reminded me that I don't know everything. Um, Thank you for all 12 chapters. Um, There are some chapters that I would have removed if I was creating a canon of scripture. And I would have been wrong. uh, Because uh, you breathed this out uh, with the purpose of equipping your saints. All of it. And so I pray this morning, as we walk away, that everyone in this room, uh, whether it's uh, someone's first Sunday, or uh, whether uh, there are those who have been tracking the entirety of this series and everyone in between, I pray that we would all walk away with an understanding of taught us through this book of the Bible, uh, that we would uh, not be the church that just works through one series after another and fails to monument what you're teaching us through it all. What a waste. God, would you help us to monument your work in our lives this morning, Um, and would you do that for your glory and our good. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, the last chapter of the book of Daniel, beginning in verse one, says this, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever." Remember, the final three chapters, if you've been around for the last few weeks, uh, are connected to one another. They represent one episode, one scene, so to speak, the final vision that Daniel receives. And so chapter 12 is a continuation of where we left off last week. Daniel finds himself on the bank of the Tigris River where he receives a vision from the Lord. And it's a vision of the persecution that is to come for God's people. And not just God's people in Daniel's day, but God's people throughout the course of human history until Jesus returns. The vision continues in chapter 12, and it's unquestionably with respect to the last days. There have been a number of visions that it's been difficult to pinpoint in terms of when are these going to come true in human history as far as Daniel is concerned. But this is not one of those. We know that Daniel chapter 12 is a declaration of the last days because we have the mention of things like the book in verse 1. Um, meaning the book of life. Um, You have the language of the resurrection of the dead in verses two and three. Unless you've seen people rising out of their graves recently, I think it's a future thing that's gonna take place. And so Daniel's getting a glimpse into the final days of human history. And and it's pretty incredible. Uh, We have to be cautious, I think, when we come across phrases like what you see in verse one. Uh, When you see a phrase like that, uh, the tendency is to wanna narrow the lens a little too much. Look at verse one, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Now some might be inclined to say, I think we're there. Our country's in serious trouble. We've never been so divided as a nation. We must be in the last days. We must be in the days of Daniel chapter 12. And and to be sure, we we should live as though Jesus could return at any moment. That's biblical. That's a biblical perspective. That's actually what Daniel chapter 12 is going to drive at in terms of application, living as though Jesus could return at any moment. But here's what I found myself wrestling with this week as I study this passage and specifically verse 1, I found myself wrestling with this question. What does it say to Jews in 1940s Germany when we declare the present to be the worst that it's ever been? What does it say to African Americans in the days of slavery when we declare uh, the present to be the worst that it's ever been? What does it say to Christians who suffered persecution under Nero and Domitian and Trajan and Marcus Aurelius and the list of cruel emperors goes on and on? Human nature is to read apocalyptic passages like this through the lens of a a particularized context. But, But we have to remember the Bible is not an American book. The Bible is a global book because God is a God of the nations. So we need to be careful not to extend the reaches of our interpretation uh, beyond what's healthy. It's healthy to, to believe that we live in the realm of the not yet, that everything is not as it should be. It's healthy to believe that Jesus could in fact return at any time. It's healthy to live as though we believe that's true. It's healthy at a heart level to long for his return, but much beyond that is left to speculation. The aspect of verses one through three that's not speculative is that a resurrection will take place in the end. Um, This book of the Bible closes with the clearest declaration in all of the Old Testament of the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. And it says there will be a double resurrection, some unto eternal life, some unto eternal punishment. Jesus talks about this a lot in the Gospels. Um, He talks about in Matthew 25, the separating of the sheep from the goats, uh, with the sheep being ushered into the eternal kingdom of God and the goats being cast into eternal punishment. Now for many... This is a really hard doctrine. Let's be honest. Let's not um, treat this as if it's something simplistic to wrap our minds and hearts around. This is a really hard doctrine because God is love. And love is irreconcilable with the idea of casting a person into the darkness of eternal torment, is it not? I mean, upon first glance, that kind of argument would seem to make a lot of sense. However, what we oftentimes fail to acknowledge is that God's love is a love permeated by his holiness. A.W. Pink says this. He says, divine love is not a sentimental passion which overrides moral distinctions. God's love is a holy love. And because it is such, he hates all evil. In other words, God's love cannot be separated from his holiness God's holiness is diminished if he allows crimes committed against him and one another to go without consequence. And if God's love cannot be separated from his holiness, then to diminish his holiness is to diminish his love. You track him with me? And so as crazy as it might sound, God's love is made much of not in the denial of hell, but in the affirmation of it. But the existence of hell does indeed make clear that God is, is a holy God, and the brighter his holiness shines, the brighter his love shines, as the two are inseparable. All right, that, that's, a, that's a systematic theology class right there. If that didn't click immediately, take that home with you and, and wrestle with it. Think about that. Think about the gospel implications, if nothing else. That to diminish the reality of hell is to diminish not only that which Christ suffered, but that which Christ conquered. Right? We celebrate every week as we come into this place that Jesus is our wrath-bearing, hell-conquering Savior. And that's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful thing to celebrate. Speaking of Jesus, notice here in verse 2 the language of shame and everlasting contempt. You know, the most devastating thing, we've talked about this before, that Jesus experienced on the cross was not the physical pain. Though movies like The Passion of the Christ would lead you perhaps to believe that, the, the most devastating thing that Jesus experienced on the cross was separation from his Father for the first time in all of eternity. And so if we take that and apply that to our understanding uh, of this idea of the resurrection of the dead, the same can be said of those who don't love and follow Jesus. The, the worst of, of the doctrine of hell is not the pain that is to be experienced, but rather eternal separation from God, the fountain of eternal joy. With all the shame and contempt that goes along with that. That word contempt means a disregard for something that should have been taken into account. The idea is that some will experience an eternity of knowing that they should have taken the gospel into account but didn't. That's devastating. Okay? C.S. Lewis in his great work, The Weight of Glory, says this. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He goes on to say, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Finally, he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Have you ever thought about that? Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals, he says, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's what Daniel chapter 12 teaches. That's a sobering thought that though we will all die unless Jesus returns first, we will all live forever. Some will live as everlasting splendors, basking in the presence of their good King Jesus forever. While others will live as immortal horrors, separated from God in an eternal nightmare. A nightmare that offers no hope of waking up. The missional life matters. Okay? The, the word missional is not a buzzword that separates the cool churches from the lame ones. To embrace the missional life is to actually care about hell-bound sinners. In the same way that prayer is the means by which God brings about his decreed will, he has ordained that to be the means. We've talked about that before in this series. So the proclamation of the gospel is the means by which God breathes life into dead life with souls. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we encounter every day. So the question for us is, are we going to go after some souls or not? I say we do it. Look at the alternative outcome for those who are in Christ. Everlasting life, shining like the brightness of the sky with the radiance of the stars. I don't even know what to do with that. Don't ask me to doctrinally unpack that one for you because I can't do it. I can just tell you it's going to rule. Okay, that's the best I can do. It does make sense if you think about it. The apostle John, 1 John 3, 2 says, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like Jesus, the bright morning star, shining like the stars in the heavens. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of glorification. If you need to be encouraged this week, go buy a good systematic theology book, flip to one of the last chapters and read about the doctrine of glorification. It will blow your mind. We talked about this in the Beautiful Mess series, if you recall, if you were around at that time, as we worked our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed That in a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second, our souls will be reunited with our bodies. And if you're a Christian, God's going to adorn you with adjectives suited for an eternity in his presence in that moment. That's pretty cool. And not just our bodies, but creation itself. That when Jesus returns, creation itself will be transformed and freed from the effects of sin. You can read all about that in Romans chapter 8. Creation groans, longing for redemption, just like us. Creation itself will, in a blink, become more beautiful and efficient for the purposes of eternity. It's going to be a playground for God's people in his presence. That's awesome. God's not scrapping planet Earth. He's not starting over. He pronounced it good in the beginning. He loves it. He will redeem it. He will recreate it, make it exponentially better. This is critical. Let me say this. One of Satan's great deceptions is to convince us that hell will be bo- or heaven will be boring. Let me say that again. One of Satan's greatest deceptions is to convince us that heaven will be boring. You know how I know that's part of his scheme, because most everyone in this room has thought that at some point in your life. When in fact, it's hell that will be without a plot. It's hell that will be without imagination heaven will not be boring because god will be there if we if we have a low view of heaven that is likely connected to our view and understanding of the god of heaven we talked about this in the series in the seven churches in revelation you remember that one Um, in revelation god is described as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian his throne surrounded with an emerald rainbow carnelian is a redstone um Jasper, on the other hand, is a translucent stone, which means it's semi-transparent. You can see through it, but what's on the other side is blurry. Um, An example of something translucent will be a stained glass window. You you can kind of see through, but but what's on the other side is just a little fuzzy. And so according to the book of Revelation, God's throne has this light refracting thing going on so that if you were to move an inch to the left everything would radiate with a different brilliance than it did before you moved that inch. That's pretty crazy to think about. That'll be your experience of God in the age to come. God is the source of light. God is the source of splendor. God is the source of majesty. He will never bore you in the new heavens and earth. To move an inch will be to have your mind blown all over again. For those of us who are bored in life, that's good news. Heaven will not be boring because God will be there. And in Christ, we will be able to stand in the presence of God and not burn up in an instant, but rather enjoy making much of him. Enjoy having our minds blown. Never to be separated from him ever again. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. The ultimate gain of the gospel is not heaven, but the God of heaven. The one who will overwhelm you with his splendor and glory for eternity. Look at verse 4 goes on to say, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We talked about this in chapter 8. All, all this isn't going to come true overnight, everything that's written in the book of, of Daniel. So the angel says, you're going to have to preserve this truth, protect this truth. It's going to matter. God's people are going to want to have this when they're going through great persecution and hardship in the future. That, that's the entire Bible for us, is it not? preserve truth that equips us and sustains us in the midst of hardship and pain can you imagine and i don't think we sit with this question often in life can you imagine if the scriptures had not been preserved if you didn't have a bible to go to for wisdom for knowledge for hope I mean, that's devastating if you think about it long enough. Now, it's not if the Bible just kind of sits on a nightstand and never gets touched. But, but if you've experienced the joy and the truth and the hope that, that the word of God brings into the life of his people, then it's something to praise him for, for preserving the truth of who he is and who he is for us as he has revealed it to us in his word. We don't have to run to and fro, as verse 4 says, in this never-ending search for truth and meaning. We have it. We have something better than human speculation. We have divine revelation. Verse 5 goes on to say, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. Remember, this is a continuation of of that which began in verse 10. Daniel found himself on the, the bank of the Tigris River in chapter 10, receiving this final vision and the visitation of this angel to make sense of it all. It goes on to say in the next few verses, verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. Here we get the the first of two questions in this chapter. How long? How long shall it be till the end of of these wonders? How long until all this comes true? And the answer to that question is a time, times, and half a time. Thanks, angel, for clearing that up, right? If you say, I don't understand, you're in good company. Verse 8, Daniel says, neither do I, people. I have no idea what in the world that means. You can read a lot of good commentaries, and even the most detailed ones that get down into the weeds of numbers at the end say, but I could be wrong. The the consensus statement that seems to come out of that kind of a phrase, a time, times, and half a time, the best that anybody can unify on is this idea that, that that's the equivalent to three and a half times, which falls short of seven times, which is the number of completion. And so this argument could be could be made that God's people will experience hardship and persecution, but it it will have an end to it. It won't be forever uh, for us. We don't ultimately know what that phrase means in its fullness. What we do know, according to another phrase in that section of verses, is that the end will come when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. When Satan and his army of darkness have done their worst to overcome the light. That's hard to wrap our minds around, isn't it? It's going to get really, really, really bad before Jesus does something about it. But doesn't that sound a lot like what happened on a splintered Roman wooden cross a couple thousand years ago? That Satan and his army of darkness did their best to overcome the light, and it appeared as though the light of Christ had been snuffed out. Yet it was precisely in that moment that a resurrection took place that declared that the light had overcome the darkness. That's the beauty of the gospel. The same can be said when Jesus returns at his second coming. It will appear as though the darkness might have won. And in that moment, another resurrection will happen. Namely, our resurrection either to everlasting splendor or everlasting shame. And either way, Jesus will be glorified. The light will overcome the darkness. This chapter and this book concludes with the final verses, continuing in verse 8. Says Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Here, here we get the second question, which comes from Daniel himself. He asks, what, what shall be the outcome of these things? I, I still don't understand uh, what you're saying, Lord. And notice the response. It's not a seminary lecture on the intricate details of Jesus' second coming. Rather, it's a command to go to persevere, to fight for holiness. That yes, we do get some numbers to work with in verses 11 and 12, but again, most scholars have no idea of what to do with those numbers. The best that that many of them can say is that the precision of those numbers declares that God knows with precision when he will make everything sad untrue. That's the best that a dozen or so scholars that I read this week could do with those numbers. Even the ones, again, who got into... To, knee-deep in the weeds detail, at the end of their statement said, but I could be wrong. Which is really frustrating if the main application point of the book of Daniel is to figure out all of the details of of Jesus' second coming. However, if you believe that the main application point of the book of Daniel is to keep fighting the good fight of faith, well, those numbers aren't so bothersome to you. That's what the declaration of Christ's second coming is meant to lead to, not, not a sitting down with charts and graphs to determine all the nuanced details of the future, but rather a present tense strengthening of, a, of our resolve to live a life that honors our king and points as many people to him as we can. That's what you see in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter describes the second coming of Jesus in this apocalyptic kind of language, the establishment of a new heaven and earth. Look at what 2 Peter 3.11 says. Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved in the end, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, God's promise of a kingdom to come is meant to compel us to live for that kingdom now. Ian Duguid, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, The prospect of heaven is the answer to Satan's temptations to compromise and submit to his ways. The anticipation of seeing God's face shining on us with the same warmth and love that he has for his own son is the answer to our present discouragement, difficulty, and despair. Lift up your eyes from the trials and difficulties of the present and behold the glorious inheritance God has prepared for you. Gaze intently upon that glorious sight and let it strengthen your weak knees and encourage your failing arms for the battle that is still set before you. That our future is so certain, our future is so secure that we can boldly, courageously persevere in the midst of present tense uncertainty. Let me say it this way, if you aren't compelled to live for God and his kingdom any more than you were when we started this series, you've missed the entire point of the book of Daniel. And we actually have a greater confidence than even Daniel had, because the cross is in the rearview mirror, right? God has proven his word, his promise to be true. The cross is a past tense reality for us. We know that God is a promise keeper because he sent the hero that he promised that he would send back in Genesis 3.15. That at Calvary, we saw the darkness do its best to overcome the light, and yet the light overcame the darkness with resurrection power. We've seen God do it before. He'll do it again. We can trust in that. We have certainty of the past. We have the promise of the future, which is meant to create resolve in us to fight in the midst of the present. I don't know about you, but I could say this about this entire book of the Bible, but most certainly... This final chapter of the book of Daniel makes me unbelievably grateful for the gospel. Going back to verse one, we don't have to fight to earn our way into that book of life that's talked about in Daniel chapter 12. Jesus did that for us. Jesus lived the life we could never live, a perfect sinless life. He died our, our death. He bore the shame. He bore the contempt so that we don't have to. But more than that, he rose from the dead, conquering our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He has the authority to raise us up to everlasting life because he is the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him, though they die, yet they shall live. That's good news. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, this life and its brokenness do not have the final word, whatever that looks like for you. Jesus endured the darkness so that you and I could shine like stars forever. Isn't the gospel glorious? That's been my hope throughout the course of this entire series, that the gospel would become even more glorious to us all. That's the reason that I preach this series the way that I have. Um, I've attempted not to get knee-deep in the weeds of debate, but rather to point out clear gospel truths in this book of the Bible so that it might, one, unify us, and, and two, enable us to fight, to persevere, to fight the good fight of faith. When we began this series a few months ago, I posed the following question. Why in the world not play it safe? Why, why dive into such a complex, challenging book of the Bible? And again, can we all agree that that's what this book of the Bible is? Complex, challenging, not easy to understand. When our boy Daniel has to make that statement himself in verse 8, we can know that that's true. There are a number of ways that you could probably respond to that question. If, if we were to actually pass around note cards and say, well, what's been the, the benefit of working through a series like this as the church? I would imagine that I would probably receive dozens of different responses. Yes, there may be a few broad brushstroke themes that would drive those responses, but there would be a lot of different nuances that would bring about your answer to that question. But coming back around to some of the things that we talked about in the first few weeks of this series and have continued to talk about throughout the course of the series, just a few things to close with this morning. In the book of Daniel, we encounter a God who's both sovereign and good in all circumstances. That for those like me, I mentioned this the first week of this series, those like me who struggle at times to believe that God is in fact indeed in control and actually cares about you, the book of Daniel offers hope It puts on display a God who is seated on his throne, a God whose plans cannot be thwarted, a God who sets up kings and deposes kings, a God who turns the greatest evil upside down on its head. We've seen it over and over and over again in this book of the Bible. And not just a God who's sovereign, but a God who greatly loves his people, a God who preserves his people in the midst of persecution and pain, a God who keeps his promises, a God who promises to make everything sad untrue for you in the end. I said this in week one, I'll say it again. The book of Daniel invites us to stop interpreting God's character through the lens of our circumstances and rather to interpret our circumstances through the lens of God's character, nature, and being. He's enthroned in the heavenly as the one true sovereign and he loves you with a love that knows absolutely no bounds, Christian. The book of Daniel also reminds us of the beauty of a life lived in dependence upon the wisdom and spirit of God. It challenges our understanding of what it means to live out the Christian life, does it not? The the same Daniel who refuses to drink the king's wine is the same Daniel who's willing to enroll in the most pagan university of his day. The same Daniel who prays unwaveringly three times a day, who refuses to bow down to idols, is the same Daniel who works at the right hand of pagan kings with pagan agendas. What do you do with that? The book of Daniel reminds us that the living out of a biblical Christian ethic is not some reductionistic one-size-fits-all. Though if you're like me, you would like it to be that, right? Let's make it as black and white as we can, just a few boxes to check so I can make sure I'm on the right path. And yet God actually extends the fence out so that we can play in it. And he, in kindness, gives us, one, his word to sit under the authority of to help us navigate cultural waters for his glory. He gives us his spirit to indwell us, to lead and guide us as we seek to glorify him under the banner of his word. And he gives us the church to make sure we didn't get the first two wrong, to surround ourselves with so that we might walk in wisdom. And it will be messy at times, but we have everything that we need to live a life that honors our king. And lastly, the book of Daniel reminds us that Every life represented in this room unquestionably has purpose. From the most intense episodes to the most mundane, whatever you're going through, it matters. It has purpose in, in God's eternal uh, story of redemption. That glorifying God doesn't always involve shutting the mouths of lions, though that would be super cool if it did. That glorifying God doesn't always happen in the 5,000 degree centigrade heat of a fiery furnace. Going back to Jeremiah 29, sometimes the best way to glorify God is to build a house, to plant a garden, to fall on your knees and and pray like Daniel in chapter 9, because as a friend of mine once said, yes, God moves mountains, but prayer moves God. The book of Daniel is an invitation to us to persevere, to fight the good fight of faith, to use prayer as a weapon in our arsenal in the midst of that battle. I, I love the way this book of the Bible ends. It's a perfect ending. It always is, by the way, because God is the perfect author. But notice how this this book closes out. Daniel's been faithful all these years. Let's not forget, Daniel's not a teenage boy anymore. He's in his 80s at this point, likely. If anyone has the right to ask for a little clarity from this angel, it's Daniel. He's earned that right. Yet what is the angel's final response? You have an inheritance that awaits you. So go, Daniel. Wake up tomorrow and persevere in the faith just like you have all these years. That final word to Daniel, that's the same final word to you and to me as we close out this series this morning. You have an inheritance that awaits you, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So go. Wake up tomorrow and persevere in the faith just like you have up to this day. In a moment, we're going to take communion We have an opportunity to receive the bread, dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Yet another opportunity for us to celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I don't know about you, but if there's nothing else to celebrate for me this morning, it's the fact that I don't have to claw my way into that book in verse 1 that Jesus did everything necessary to secure my place in that book so that I might shine like the stars in heaven one day and bask in his presence forever. That's something to celebrate, church, as we come and and receive of the elements this morning. And as we do so, I would just invite you to to sit with and wrestle with the question, to ask God, if you've yet to see it, what what did you want from me in this series? That, That we wouldn't be the church that would make it four or five series down the road and would go I have no idea I remember I remember the bumper video was loud in that one I remember it was short in the other one he, he struggled to get up there half the time because it was so so quick you know I, I remember uh this one had a cool graphic and and you know I, I remember these these subtle little things but but to ask and to monument God what were you doing why did it matter that we spent three months in this book of the Bible What were you teaching me? And again, if this is your first week to even wrestle with, God, what did you want to teach me in Daniel chapter 12? Because in your providence, you had me here. Let's wrestle with that as a church and let's monument, let's mile mark those moments in our lives and what God's doing and celebrate that. Celebrate the work of the Spirit in revealing the truths of who God is and who he is for us in Christ to us. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.